Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. Someday we'll find it, the Rainbow Connection. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Pride Connection. I am one of your hosts, Anthony Corona. This evening, we are joined by BPI member Scott Marshall, who will be doing the bulk of this interview because he's the one who pointed us in the direction of our guest in the first place. As always, I'm here with President Gabriel Lopez Cafati, who's going to welcome us with a quick president's message. I noticed your emphasis on the word quick. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely welcoming everyone. As you all know, uh, this is Pride LGBT Month. And we always try to bring that awareness to our ACB community and uh, share with everyone, not only the celebration that is the LGBTQ Pride, but what the struggles have been and uh, what has molded us as a community into who and what we are today not only uh, as BPI, but the LGBT community at large. So as Anthony pointed out, we are joined by not only BPI member, but lifetime member, Scott Marshall. And uh, we are so honored to have a name that is becoming so familiar in BPI and ACB, Eric Marcus. We are so delighted to have you back. Eric, welcome to Pride Connection. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's always uh, a pleasure to speak to to you and to your members. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, For those of you who um, did not get a chance to attend our virtual convention in January, BPI had our, uh, what we created our first virtual convention. And uh, Eric gave us a wonderful presentation. He's an authority in LGBTQ history. But um, yes, if you did not get a chance to uh, join us, it's in podcast form. And um, we'd be happy to share it with anyone. Um, Eric is collaborating with us in this program. And he will also be at Convention National in July. So watch out for BPI's programming because um, every time we have Eric, it's a learning experience and a learning opportunity for everyone, not only within BPI, but ACB and the community at large. Anthony, do you want to talk a little bit about the collaboration with Ira? I did. As um, most of our listeners know, Ira is a visual interpreting service. 
and they produce um, Days at the Museum and other fabulous content. They recently brought us all to Mars for the Mars rover landing. That was all audio described. And um, starting this week, they will be running a virtual tour of Stonewall along with the historical conversations surrounding the Stonewall episode and why it is a fundamental part of LGBTQ history. And thanks to Eric, um, we were appointed in the direction of a great historian. Eric, will you be joining us for the program or just listening in? Um, I won't be, but I'll be listening in if I can. Awesome. Well, thank you for pointing us in those directions. And uh, we are really, really excited about that partnership. But I am going to turn it over to Scott because he's got the bulk of the questions. Thanks, Anthony. And hi, Eric. It's good to have you back. Glad to be back. We have many listeners to this podcast that are not members of our Blind Pride affiliate. So I wonder if you could start by talking about the recent death of Kay Mahusen and uh, her partner in life and partner in advocacy, Barbara Giddings. During your bonus episode, you spoke of them as dear friends and yes. mentors. Can you tell us why those two people were important in gay history and what impact they had on your future work? Yeah, um, I think of Kay and Barbara, that's Kayla Husen and Barbara Giddings, as the happy warriors of our movement. They're unusual in that their involvement in the movement spanned from before Stonewall to after Stonewall. They both got involved. They were very active during the 1960s with the Daughters of Belitis, um, which was a lesbian, an organization for lesbians founded in 1955 in San Francisco. Uh, Barbara and Kay became a couple in 1961. Um, and then Barbara became the editor of the latter, which was the magazine of the Daughters of Belitis. And Kay was a photographer um, and photographed our movement from the early days. So there are famous photographs from 1965 of the first protests by gay people in front of the White House, in front of the Pentagon. Uh, and those were taken by Kay. So if not for Kay do documenting the movement, we, we, we would, uh, there'd be a lot missing in terms of uh, photographs uh, document, uh, uh, documented um, the 1960s and the 1970s. So the reason I wanted to interview them, and I interview them at greater length than anybody else uh, for my book, Making Gay History, which was originally published in uh, 1992 under the title Making History, I spent about uh, six or seven hours with Barbara and Kay Total uh, interviewing them for the book because their work in the movement was so extensive. After the uh, Stonewall Uprising, they got involved with the new organizations, gay, uh, especially the Gay Activist Alliance. And uh, Barbara got involved with the American Library Association because books were so important for so many of us. It's where we discovered ourselves. And they were also deeply involved in getting homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses in 1973, working with the American Psychiatric Association. There's a story I love to tell about Barbara and Kay, and you can hear it in one of the episodes from the Making Gay History podcast we did two episodes with Barbara and Kay from seasons one and season two. And then we did a third episode with Kay, which I'll explain in just a moment, um, a more recent uh, interview with Kay. There was a story they told about the 1971 American Library Association convention in Dallas. And they prepared a bibliography of all of the positive books about gay and lesbian people that were available at the time. Um, if I remember correctly, they said it filled two sides of a legal sheet of paper. 
legal size sheet of paper. The year before, 1970, it said maybe it was one side of uh, standard letter size uh, paper. So they printed up the bibliography. They taped it up all over the convention center in the elevators, and they had a booth on the convention floor uh, with the bibliography and some signs. But nobody was interested in the bibliography, and nobody was interested in the booth. What was available in the booth? So they decided to get everyone's attention by creating a booth that they called "Hug a Homosexual." And so they stripped the booth down to the bare gray curtains. They put up a sign that said "Hug a Homosexual." They had a special guest who was there at the convention who just had a book published named Alma Routsong. So Barbara and Alma hugged on one side of the booth, and two of the guys hugged on the other side of the booth, and nobody came. But the aisles were jammed, and Life Magazine was there. All the local news stations were there, and they were on the six o'clock news that night. They were on the eleven o'clock news that night, and they were on the news the next morning. And they really made news. And the people who planned the convention. But the American Library Association were furious that Barbara and Kay had gotten all that attention, and their famous authors who were at the convention didn't get attention.、Um, but Barbara said they made an important point: not just getting all this attention for the hug homosexual booth, that gay people had the same rights as everybody else,、uh, and should be treated the same way. But they did it with a sense of humor. They had a blast.、And、when you hear the interviews I did with them, there's so much laughter about what they did. I, I can't think of anyone else besides Frank Kameny,、um, who they partnered with in the '60s and '70s to get these to、um, for these initial protests, and then the American Psychiatric Association. It's hard to imagine individuals who are as influential on the course of the movement as Barbara and Kay and Frank Kameny. In more recent years, I got in touch with Kay when we started doing the podcast, and I always stayed in touch with Barbara and Kay. The only photograph I have of Of the more than 100 people I interviewed for my my book is a photograph with Barbara from 1988 that Kay took, and there I am in a bushy, well, as one of my friends called it, a porn stash, my mustache, my 1980s mustache,、um, with with a lot of hair that I don't have anymore, and、um, and it's the one picture I have. It's with Barbara, and I treasure it. More recently, I got in touch with Kay when I started working on the podcast, and. Went to visit her at the、uh, retirement community where she lived with Barbara. By the time I saw Kay, Barbara had died. And when we interviewed Kay, I went with Sarah Burningham, who's the founding editor and producer of Making Gay History. Kay mentioned during our conversation that she had organized a gay table, a gay dinner table, at her retirement community once a month. So Sarah and I just knew we had to invite ourselves back, which we did. And we sat around the table with Kay. And several of her friends from the community who were also gay and lesbian. And、uh, what was remarkable, remarkable to me about the people who were there was that we asked them each to complete the phrase "I made gay history when," and they all basically said, "Yeah, we didn't do very much." But then, as they filled, they completed the sentence. That's amazing. Up, each one of them, one of them at the table, had incredible stories to tell about their roles and what they did. One of them. Uh, Marge,、um, whose last name escapes me for the moment, Marge said, "You know, I I don't I don't have any way of filling in that sentence. I didn't do anything." And she said, "I was just I was just the secretary of of the daughters of Belitis back then." I said, "Well, what did you do as secretary?" She said, "Well, and mind you, being the secretary of the daughters of Belitis back then was a big deal. There were there were maybe four hundred or three hundred people involved, activists involved in the movement across the country." So she said, "Well, I surveyed all of the attorneys general." In the United States, about the laws regarding homosexuals, and she said, "I compiled all that information for the convention." And I said, "Were you at the 1965 convention in New York?" She said, "Oh yeah, I was there." I said, "There's a famous picture of the people at the convention, including Frank Kameny and Herb Don,、uh, Vander Smith, 
um, who was, came from the West Coast, and several other people, um, Shirley Willer, who I also interviewed, who was the president of the Daughters of Elitists, I said, is that you in the white dress on the left-hand side smoking a cigarette? She said, oh, yeah, that was me. Like, I had been trying to figure out who was in that photograph. And she said, that was probably the last time I ever wore a dress. So they each had, and there they were at this table in rural Pennsylvania in this retirement community. It's one of my favorite episodes. It's a bonus episode. It's called Kay's Gay Table. So whenever I called Kay in recent years, she'd always say, what have you got for me? She always wanted to know what was going on in my work, in the movement, and always urged me on. She knew I was on the board of a new gay museum, a new LGBTQ plus museum in New York City that we're, we're going to launch. And she said, you got to do it. You can't give up. You got to push forward. And so I will always carry Kay's voice with me. I'm sad that she's died. We had a lot of time together and I feel grateful for that. And there's a Making Gay History play now and Kay is one of the characters, as is Barbara. So I'm hoping their stories will live on through the Making Gay History podcast and will also live on through the Making Gay History play, which premiered uh, at its high school premiere at Deerfield High School in Deerfield, Illinois, last November. The kids did the show masked and socially distanced. It was filmed and then streamed, they sold 600 tickets. Um, and so wow. people got to meet Kay and Barbara. Yeah. So I feel so fortunate to, to have met them. And I will always have Kay's voice in my ear saying, what have you got for me? And I better have mm-hmm. something. You better, yes. I better yeah. have something. Yeah. yeah. But I'll, I'll miss her. She was, she was just terrific. She didn't think she was worthy of much attention. She felt it was Barbara who did yeah. everything. But Kay was equally worthy of, of, uh, of the attention she got and was widely remembered in obituaries ranging from the New York Times to National Public Radio, yes. Washington Post, just about everywhere. And she and Barbara are interred here in Washington, correct? They are. They are. And I think you mentioned on, the, on their uh, plaque, it says, gay pioneers who spoke truth to power. And in solid caps, it says, gay is good. That makes when I saw that the first time, it made me cry. Yeah, um, me yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, here we go again. Here we go again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. On that phrase, that phrase was created by Frank Kameny and it was patterned after Black is Beautiful. Oh, really? wow. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Wow. Speaking, of, speaking of Frank, another Washingtonian. Yeah. Was he the guy that you said? And I, one of the questions I have for you among all the people you interviewed, who you would like to go out and have a beer with on the reverse side of that who you found to be most difficult. <laughs> yeah, there were a few people who were challenging. Uh, some people yeah. I didn't like. Frank, I found challenging. I liked him. But Frank was was a bulldozer. and You got out of the way from the bulldozer. Yeah, I exactly. remember that. Yeah. You turn yeah. on the tape recorder, and he was just going. I sat across from him, across his desk, and it was as if he was addressing an audience of hundreds. And you know, if I had been able nice. to back up, I'd been, I would have been pressed against the wall. He was emphatic. He, you know, as I've come to think about it, over time, I think that Frank had Asperger's that like um, um, uh, Greta Thornburn, the, the, the kid, the 16 year old who's a climate, uh, climate change activist. Right. Yes. She, yes. She, she talked about being the advantages of having Asperger's, Asperger's, that it allowed her to have a single focus and to never give up and to not let right. anyone thwart her. And that was how Frank was. Frank was a bulldozer. Right. He was right. They were wrong. And he was going to change the world. Exactly. His uh, view of things. Yeah. And he was doing this in the 60s. Amazing. He lost his job with the government, correct? Uh, and, yeah. Uh, in 1957, during the Lavender Scare, he was fired from right. his job at the Army Map uh, Corps. And wow. he was a PhD um, astronomer. And he didn't know how to do anything else. And he couldn't yeah. get a job. A job. 
So what he did is he founded the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C. and decided the government declared on war on me. I don't allow my government to declare war on me, and I'm declaring war right back. And for people that, that need to listen to your podcast interviews, he has the most interesting commanding voice that you <laughs> just yes. have to listen to. <laughs> Yes, there's a, have to listen to it. there's a young man who played Frank. So the, the Making Gay History play, which is called Making Gay History Before Stonewall, right. and was adapted by a professor at uh, New York University who specializes in documentary theater. He adapted the play for the stage, adapted the podcast uh-huh. for the stage. And uh-huh. it was first performed uh, by NYU, uh, New York University students um, and graduate students and graduates um, at the Provincetown Playhouse in Greenwich Village in New York City. We had an, a 10... Uh, show run, and they were all sold out. And the kid who was cast for Frank Kameny did such a great Frank Kameny that he did a better Frank Kameny than Frank Kameny could do. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So when I think of Frank Kameny now, I think of this young man and his portrayal of Frank because he nailed it. (laughs) It was just, you know, the spit was flying from his mouth. He was just emphatic. Um, Frank, I would say, was one of the most uh, memorable people I interviewed. Um, Barbara and Kay would say he was probably one of the more difficult, if not the most difficult, because he didn't take no for an answer. And he often talked over you like I'm talking over you now. He was just he was fierce. He was fierce. And he didn't stop until he had won. It took 14 years before he won, which meant the rescinding of the regulation barring gay people from federal employment. And, and, and wasn't he a, a driving force with uh, Kay and, and Barbara when they became disillusioned about the conservative stance of the Daughters of Boletus? Yeah, and it was the Daughters of, of Boletus is how it Boletus? was pronounced. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. Sorry. The way it's spelled, you think it's Boletus, yeah. but it's Boletus. They, you know, a lot of people actually, a lot of the women hated that name because it meant nothing to most people. So hard to pronounce. Uh, but they're also trying to hide the fact that it was a lesbian organization given the times in which sure. it was founded. Sure, sure. Yeah, they got they got more and more frustrated with with the early founders of the movement who who started a generation earlier. You know, with each generation, people push farther and are more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so the earliest activists were most concerned with trying to help people just manage in a society where yeah, they couldn't, exactly. couldn't fit in. When Frank came along, he was eager to step out and get more active um, and be more public, as were Barbara and Kay. So yeah. Barbara and Kay ultimately left the latter behind because they were trying to push the envelope. And the people who ran the Daughters of Belitas out of San Francisco found Barbara and Kay to be too aggressive. But this is always the case in our movement. You know, that it happened to us, too, actually. The uh, current name of our organization is Blind LGBT Pride uh, International. 21 years ago, when the organization was first founded, it was called Blind Friends of Lesbians and Gays because people were fearful that a right. gay affiliate organization would not be accepted right. in our parent group, the American Council of the Blind. I, I hope you'll have, we'll have time to talk about Gene and Maury Manford, uh, founders of PFLAG, because we were modeled after, oh, after that. Oh, I'll be happy to talk about them. It strikes me, you know, the American Council of the Blind also came out of, you know, the need to, there was another organization um, that still exists that was much more conservative and, and a little bit more narrow-minded than, you know, than a lot of, you know, my predecessors, Scott's, even Scott's predecessors mm. had liked at the time. And, and the American Council of the Blind was born as well. Activist movements, uh, you so eloquently put it, every generation pushes the envelope further and further. I, at my prom, if I would have shown up with a gentleman 
as my date, you know, I would have been bullied, possibly beaten, you know, and most likely escorted from the building, you know, in just, just a few short years later, I I remember marveling and, and screaming in such joy when prom queen and queen were elected at my (laughs) high school. The first thought was, my God, they would have beat us if we did this, you know, 15 years ago. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, And then it's challenging for those of us who've been around a long time to adjust to a changed world, different language, different way of dressing, different ways of thinking of yourself. I was interviewed yesterday by an, uh, an 11th grader who was using phrases that I barely am familiar with. I'm 50 years older than she is. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. 50. And when we got involved with the movement, it was gay and lesbian. Right. And it became gay, lesbian, bisexual, then GLBT, then GLBTQ, and then now LGBTQ+, and Q. Yes. And G, you know, GNCIA, all the rest. Yeah, all um, the rest. Yeah, all the rest. And Barbara and Kay, when they went to the first, their first meeting of the Gay Activist Alliance, or it was the Gay Liberation Front, I can't remember which. After Stonewall, they were out of New York during the Stonewall Uprising, came back in the fall, and went to a meeting in October, I believe, of 1969. And they were called out. Frank Kennedy was there too. They were called out. The, the young activists said, "Who are you?" Yeah. They didn't know who Barbara and, and Kay were yeah. and Frank, and that they had held those first uh, protests in front of the White House and how radical that was at its time. All they knew was there are these old people who organized these ridiculous protests in front of the White House where they dressed up in coat and tie and skirts and blouses um, and gender appropriate and all the rest. And they were called dinosaurs. But Barbara and Kay, true to form, because they like to you know, do things with humor, Kay went out and bought a couple of stuffed dinosaurs and they brought little dinosaurs with them to all the meetings they went to after that. That's um, great. But what happened was a lot of the older organizations slowly fell away after the Stonewall Uprising as the more radical newer organizations and younger organizations were formed. Yeah. So, you know, at 62, I'm, a, I'm now a dinosaur. Yes, I, and, I know the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a funny be, feeling. Yeah, it is funny. It really is. It's a different time entirely, that's for sure. Scott, how, how old are you, if I may ask? I will be 70 in two weeks from now. Oh, you're, you are a real dinosaur. I am a real dinosaur. Yeah, you better <laughs> believe it. No doubt about it. And and while we're talking about dates and significant events, uh, Gabriel and, uh, and Anthony are celebrating a anniversary uh, come the 7th of July to how many years now, guys? Uh, no, it's only two, but it feels, it, but the pandemic, it feels like five. Congratulations. That's, that's, which is great. Absolutely great. Talk about Gene and Maury for me, would you, uh, about PFLAG? Yeah, I came to know PFLAG in 1978. It was sophomore, actually, I knew about PFLAG before that, because I urged my mother to go to PFLAG when I came out to her mm-hmm. um, in 1977, and she urged me to go to a psychiatrist, and I said no, and she said no. <laughs> Good um, for you. Well, I said no, because I thought she wanted me to see a psychiatrist to change, but she, it turns out, she told me years later, she was concerned because I was very depressed. And my father, uh-huh. had killed, my father had killed himself when I was 12. Uh-huh. Oh, and she was very worried that I would, I would take my life. I actually really could have used a psychiatrist then because I was very depressed and pretty depressed about being gay. Um, uh-huh. And she could have used PFLAG as a support group. But, you know, I finally went to see a therapist. I have my appointment today, at, uh, later today at 4.15. It's been 29 years with my therapist. And, wow. And my mother, oh, wow. yeah, a long time. My mother eventually became a, uh, an activist with PFLAG. I got to know PFLAG in 1978 when uh, on sophomore parents weekend at Vassar College, when um, one of my friends who ran the gay student group there asked me if I would introduce the PFLAG parents uh, to the sophomore parents. And it happened to be that my boyfriend's parents were going to be there too. 
And they had only been getting used to him being gay. It was a, it was a nerve wracking oh. experience, but they really connected with the PFLAG parents who came, who were um, Amy and Dick Ashworth. Couldn't get waspier than Amy and Dick, Dick Ashworth, as were my boyfriend's parents. They, they completely connected. So Amy and Dick, well, Amy especially became a mentor to me as I did my work. I interviewed Amy and Dick first for my first book, The Male Couples Guide. They were the first people I interviewed. Their son, Eric, became my literary agent. Eric's partner became my editor for making his history book. And I met Jean Manford early on. Jean was a co-founder of PFLAG with her son, Morty in 1972. It was then called Parents of Gays. So what happened was Morty was a young activist. He was 20 or 21. He uh, went to a protest. And he was at the Sheridan Hotel in New York City. Uh, it was protesting at this annual political dinner. And he got badly beaten by the guy who headed the firemen's union, Michael May. And Jean was infuriated that the police didn't do anything to stop the beating. And Morty wound up in the hospital. Um, and just as an aside, Jean had already lost one son to suicide. And I only learned this recently. And she was not going to let her, her kid get beaten up, her other kid. She sure. was an elementary school teacher in Flushing, Queens, very shy. But you didn't mess with her kid. So she wrote a letter to the New York Post, which was then a liberal newspaper, declaring the fact that she had a gay child and expressing her outrage that her child wasn't protected. And this is the first time that any parent had ever written publicly in that way about a gay child. So her son in 1972, Morty, asked her if she would march in the, in the gay pride march. That was, this would have been the, uh, there was the 70s, 71, 70, it was the third march. And she said, well, I won't go unless people, you know, unless they know who I am. So she made a sign that said, parents of gays, colon, unite in support of our children. And she talks in the episode from Making Gay History about how people came running up to her and kissing her and saying, oh, please talk to my parents. And then her phone was ringing off the hook. And so she and Morty decided to organize a support group for parents of gay people. And that started in 1972 called Parents of Gays. It eventually became PFLAG. Um, and now it's a national organization with over 400 chapters. Um, and I didn't know because my mother stopped telling me about her activism because she knew I sometimes was a little impatient about the fact that she became an activist when it's my work. She and Jean co-founded, along with uh, Dan uh, Danny Drum, who's now a city councilman, they co-founded Queen's PFLAG. I didn't learn this until years after my mother was dead. Wow. Um, when I interviewed Morty, I didn't know he was HIV positive. I found out uh, fairly recently from his sister that he found out only two weeks before I interviewed him that he was HIV positive. Wow. Um, he died weeks before the book was published, wow. which was just heartbreaking. And Jean uh, didn't die long ago. I'm forgetting how, how recent it was, but just a few mm -hmm. years ago. They, the, the, the important thing about Jean is that she was one of our early straight allies. And straight allies have always been an important part of our movement, especially yeah, in the absolutely. early years. Because people will listen to our parents. They'll listen to people with gray hair. They won't listen to a 21-year-old right. activist. They're also less likely to arrest a parent in a protest yep. than they are one yes. of us. Yeah. Although now that we're older, you know. Um, of course. Now we don't have an excuse. Yeah, yeah Scott, they're uh, not, not, not likely to arrest you. Well, <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Was it Andrew Young was interviewed during the Black Lives Matter? And somebody from CNN asked him, well, Mr. Young, why aren't you out in the streets with all the demonstrations and lending <laughs> your support? And he paused and he said, well, I guess I'm just too tired anymore <laughs> yeah yeah but and that's what you know there are new there are new new generations of, of course. people out there there you go and sure. you're getting to do your activist work with this organization in creating the podcast and holding meetings and providing oh, a space it's, it's for a people who are, for sure 
Yeah, sure. It's an absolutely a team effort, but it's we all get to do what we can do. That's I still true. feel guilty that I didn't do more during the AIDS crisis. Yeah, um, me too. We all did what That's we could. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I want to highlight that you are making gay history, you know, and you're you're making gay history for those of us who may not have gotten the opportunity to know so much about the community that we're fighting for now. I learned so much through the podcast and, and became, uh, you know, overeducated almost, you know, in our history. And, and I'm so thankful. It started out as a book where actually it started out even earlier than that. I believe that someone in your pre-career told you something that, that fired your own personal activism up. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Anthony, you're going to have to remind me what that is. About sitting at an anchor desk? I had already done one book by this point. So my, my career has been accidental. I'll get to that, that experience at CBS News. I was at dinner with, a, with my then partner in 1985 with another young couple. And it was, of course, the AIDS crisis. And we were talking about all the things couples were talking about. A, who does the dishes, who does the laundry, but sure. also about powers of attorney, doing a will, getting life right. insurance. Right. And right. I said, gee, I wonder if there's a book out there about you know, for male couples, for gay couples. And that, long story short, led to my first book, The Male Couple's Guide. Finding really? A male, yeah, finding I a need to talk to you further about that. We're having a session <laughs> in July uh, about that very topic. Uh, ah, well, that was my, my first book. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was in my 20s when I wrote that um, and wow. barely knew, knew what I was doing. So that had already been published by the time I was working at CBS News. I hadn't intended to write a book about anything let alone gay people. I was not even completely out when I started work on the book and had to come out to my grandmother and sister before the book was published because I knew there'd be a fair amount of attention. Yeah. So it really was my first exposure to being really public about being gay. And I didn't like being called an activist. And I insisted that I was a journalist, that I did not speak for the whole gay and lesbian community. Uh -huh. I, spoke, uh -huh. I spoke for the people I interviewed and I spoke right. for myself. But people didn't listen to that. They just assumed I was an activist. But after I finished that book, that was going to be it. No more books. I got a job at Good Morning America um, on ABC News, uh, at ABC. And then I uh, went to work at CBS Morning News. And it was at CBS Morning News that I realized that the job I really wanted was on the other side of the camera. Mm -hmm. The people who got to report on camera had a lot of fun. It was hard work, but it was a lot of fun. They also made a lot more money than I was making. And I come from a working class background, and I was very eager to make a good living. There was nobody out on national news in 1988. Sure. And there was no hiding the fact that I was gay at that point because um, I was at CBS News when my book, My Male Couple's Guide, was published. So my publisher very helpfully sent a copy of the book to every single person at CBS News. So I came in one morning and there was a copy, not that I was in the closet, but yeah. there was a copy of the book on every single desk in the office. Wow. And so I made an appointment with a senior executive who I knew, who had gone to the same college that I went to, to Vassar yeah. College. And I said, and I made the appointment because I wanted to know if they would ever put somebody on camera who was openly gay. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those conversations where you can't quite get the person you're talking to to answer your question directly. Sure. And finally, yeah. I said, I said, I just need to know for my career, yes or no, would you put an openly mm -hmm. gay person on camera at CBS News mm -hmm. National? And she said, no. And so it was pretty clear to me that I was, that, that career path was closed to me. And it was at around that time that I got a call from an editor friend of mine asking me if I would consider writing a proposal for an oral history book about the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. And I protested saying, you know, I really, I don't know why you're asking me. I don't know anything about our history, except that, you know, it's, it all started with Stonewall. I said, I'm not an academic. He said, well, actually, he said, I'm looking for someone who's fresh to the subject. 
I want a book that people will read. I don't want an academic book. I want a book like Studs Terkel's book, Working. And Studs Terkel was a famous oral historian. His book, Working, was a very successful book. And I looked at where I was with my life. I was six months into a six-month contract at CBS, um, very unhappy in my job. And I knew I wasn't going to get to do the job I wanted to do. And I spoke to my then partner. I said, well, do we risk it? Because they weren't guaranteeing they'd buy it. They said, oh, we'll likely want to buy it, but I'm offering the, the opportunity to write a proposal. And I said, can we afford for us to do this? And so I turned down a four-year contract with CBS News, uh, which was surprisingly easy. I, I just couldn't stand my job. Right, and you were unhappy. Sure. I was unhappy. And I was still young, so I wasn't as frightened of, of not having a job. And right. spent the summer writing a proposal. Um, wow. And they bought the proposal. Um, right. And somewhere between the proposal and starting the book, I got tested for HIV and found out that I was, in fact, going to live. And it felt like that was my mission then, to get this book written, mm -hmm. to record these stories. A number of the people I was planning to interview had AIDS and were dying already. It turned out a lot of the activists were, were very old. I didn't know there was a movement before 1969, and I discovered there was 19, yep. actually more than 19 years. Most ago. people don't realize that. No. So uh, uh. I found, I couldn't believe that I, I started my research and then couldn't believe I found people like Lisa Ben, whose real name is Edith Ide, who typed the, who wrote the first letter for, a newsletter for lesbians on her office typewriter in 1947 at, when she was a secretary at RKO Radio Pictures. So the stories go back, my stories go all the way back to 1920. That's the oldest story in, in my archive. It's the second episode of the Making Gay History podcast. Wendell Sayers, African-American attorney, the first African-American attorney worked for the state attorney general in Colorado. And he tells the story of being sent to the Mayo Clinic when he was 16 from Western Kansas to be diagnosed as a homosexual. It's just such a privilege to sit and hear these stories, and people were so eager to tell them. We spoke about straight allies earlier for a moment, yeah. and I know that Scott and I um, share our favorite episode of the podcast, Centers Around Dear Abby, and I know that you told that story for us during our virtual convention, so we will definitely yes. post the link for people to hear that. But are there any other straight allies that stand out for you and why? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think of Gene Manford as one of the key straight allies. There are political figures who stepped out front uh, for us uh, who are straight, and I'm, I'm, my mind is on a blank there. Um, actually, I think of, of, of Joe Biden um, when he yeah. in support of marriage equality when Obama hadn't gotten there yet. An important, you know, Biden was an important straight ally, and and Bill Clinton, who had good intentions, seemingly, um, was an important straight ally, although he turned out to be terrible for us with, right, with, for with sure. the Defense of Marriage Act and, the, and yeah. uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, but his heart was in the right place at the beginning. So there were also people, um, oh, let me think earlier on, who were straight allies. So dear Abby, um, her... Uh, the attorney. The, oh, 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 my God, of course. Of remember? Course. Dr. The, the, Dr. Evelyn yeah. Hooker. No, well, a few. So Dr. Yeah. Evelyn Hooker. Dr. Evelyn Hooker did the first study comparing gay men to straight men, which, which she presented in 1956. She took all kinds of risks in doing this study. It could have ruined her career. And in the study, she demonstrated that gay men were no, no crazier than straight men, which no one had thought to study before. So she was a key straight ally. And then there was uh, uh, Herb Selwyn. Right, the guy from California, right? He was, yeah, he was an attorney in California. Right. He did the incorporation papers for uh, for the um, Mattachine Society in 1953. Harry Hay, who was one of the five people who founded the Mattachine Society in 1950, his mother was the, either the president or secretary of the Mattachine Society because they were afraid to put their names on any legal documents. They knew that, that their his mother a gray-haired old lady wouldn't get into trouble for being the secretary or the, or the president of this organization. So there have always been 
straight allies all along the way, whether they were out front or not. And most of them we don't know about. Um, Nancy May, who is a, a, a woman who married a gay man in the 1960s. She was arrested in 1965 at the New Year's Day Eve um, fundraiser ball for the Council on Religion and the Homosexual in San Francisco. It was a costume ball. And she was one of the organizers and she got arrested and put in jail. She lost her job. There are so many stories to be told. I only interviewed 100, 100 and some odd people for my book. I could have interviewed a thousand people. Um, and most of the stories are un remain untold. There's no uh, loss of, of knowing that our community gravitates towards a lot of the entertainment um, allies that, that stand themselves up there are three that come to mind for me for sure. Can I drop three names and get your course, personal opinion? I will start with um, the iconic Judy Garland. Oh, yes. She yes. was a friend of gay people, of gay men in particular. Uh, yes, but she, she, I don't, she wasn't vocal about, about uh, gay rights in any way, but she certainly was an iconic figure who gay men gravitated toward. But if you ask young men today about Judy Garland, most of them don't even know who she is. Right. Yeah, she was my generation. This the second name I'm going to throw out might surprise you, but Alison Ongram, who played Nellie Olson, became a huge HIV and AIDS advocate um, uh, and, and a friend of, of all of us. Do you know anything about her? And, and um, will absolutely. she possibly appear in your new series of podcasts? No, absolutely nothing about her. I don't even recognize the name. I don't either. <laughs> yeah. Is this a generational thing, Anthony? I don't know. Yeah. I don't recognize well, her. And then I'm going to give you just a tiny bit of education. No, um, good. Check, please, please, please. Google her yeah, and check please. her out and grab her book, um, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, um, where, you know, the second half of it, she talks all about her activism. And it all started because her on-screen TV husband was gay in real life. And because of his career at that point, it's still late 70s, early 80s. He couldn't be. And then he was diagnosed with HIV, eventually AIDS. And and, um, oh, oh. and she has wow. done activism, you know, for the last 30 some odd years. You know, what television show is she in? She was on Little House on the Prairie. She played oh. Nellie Olsen. Of course, of course, of course. I know. No, the show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't connect yeah. it. And I was also just thinking Elizabeth Taylor was a huge straight ally uh, during the AIDS crisis in particular. Absolutely. Um, but I'm going to throw out the iconic of iconic names and curious to know if our views match. Madonna. For another generation, yes, absolutely. And now uh, Lady Gaga for another generation. Um, I'm older than that. So my generation, there were really no, um, when I was growing up, there were no uh, iconic figures that I can remember who were in support of, of uh, gay and lesbian people, LGBTQ people. And in fact, there were, there were no celebrities out in the 80s when I was doing my work. Rock Hudson, for example. You know, oh, right. Yeah, Rock Hudson was hardly out. Was he only, not hardly out, but yeah. you know, there he was only lots came, of talk about it. Yeah. yeah, he was only forced out of the closet because he had AIDS and died. That's right, exactly. But in terms of celebrities, I remember when I worked with Greg Luganis on his autobiography, when, he came, when he came out about being gay, yeah. having AIDS, it was a huge deal um, because there were not named people uh, because they couldn't risk it. It was too dangerous. It could ruin their careers. Yeah. Ellen DeGeneres came out in 1997, um, yeah. but I, was, I came out in 1976, so... By 1997, that was 21 years after I came out. And there was a long stretch there where there weren't famous people. You look at people in the news and how, how late it was that people uh, who, who report the national news or news anchors came out of the closet. Now it's no big deal. They're, you know, gay people yeah, all over the place. Oh, yeah. Well, if you decide to go down the Alison Ongram um, arm of research, you'll find her father, her mother and father, her father was gay. Um, and they both knew what was going on. Her mother was the voice of Gumby and hundreds of cartoon voices. Uh, they were prominent Hollywood people, but they were bohemian, to say the least. 
you know, she she had been around it her whole life and, and spent the last 30 some odd years act, as an activist. That's a great segue for us because Making Gay History is now going into a new arm of, po- of the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what we can expect coming up. And when is the premiere of the new set of episodes? So um, we'll likely have the release the preview of the season the last week in June, probably just before Pride weekend, maybe the Thursday before. And then July 1st will be the first of six episodes. It's a season, we're, ta- we're calling it Making Gay History Presents, Coming of Age During the AIDS Crisis. And it is uh, my audio memoir of living through the um, AIDS crisis. We're going to uh, cover the years 1981 uh, through 1988, just the, uh, the beginning. And it's a very tough time, though. Very tough time. And it's my very tough time. And it's my story. Um, yeah, mine too. So I'm turning, and so I'm turning the tables on myself with the podcast. And um, we have someone who's taking my oral history, one of my friends from the New York Times, and we're also bringing really? in, vo- yeah, we're also bringing in voices from people I crossed paths with in those days. Uh-huh. The widow, the widow of one of the men that I counseled when I was a volunteer at GMHC. He was a straight drug addict, and um, I tracked down his widow, who I'd been in touch with, who I was in touch with back in 1980. Uh, 84, 85, when I was counseling this man, um, and then found her just a few weeks ago and uh, interviewed her about about her experiences at the time and my experiences of working with her. And then friends started to die. And uh, so so I will take people, you know, six episodes through that period of history, but principally through my lens, um, the lens of someone who was HIV negative, um, who was confused and scared and young. Um, I was 22 when I first oh, read in the yeah, I, when the New York Times first published an article on July 3rd, 1981, which had the headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals, I was 22, living in Manhattan uh, for the summer in a sublet apartment with my best friend from college. And that's how we first heard about something going on. But it didn't seem to be something that was of concern to us because it was guys who lived in the fast lane, and, and I did not. Right. So that's what's coming up. We're in the middle of producing it now. I just interviewed... Uh, a few hours before we got on this call today, I interviewed the woman um, who gave me my HIV test results in 1988 at the New York City Health Department Clinic in Chelsea on 9th Avenue and 28th Street, around the corner from where I now live. Um, and it wasn't easy tracking her down because I only had her first name, Salve, which was written on a little piece of paper that I got when I got my anonymous test results. Um, and we just had a long talk about what it was like during those times for her as a counselor, delivering this terrible news, mostly terrible news to people about, about yeah. their HIV status. Could you speak for a moment or two about the first time someone you knew was diagnosed and, and maybe even the first, you know, a by question, the first time someone you knew was dying they were going to go yeah i mean there were two people of course i was assigned to when i was at, at uh, gmhc they were people who were not friends for my life the first person uh who i knew was my friend carl wessner who was a classmate at vassar college and he died in i believe 1985 the fall of 1985 and it was oh, and i still was able to distance myself because carl lived pretty much sexually anyway lived in the, in the fast lane i did not at right. least by comparison um but compared to most straight guys i had a pretty wild uh youth uh, so I saw AIDS up close with Carl. He um, he got progressively more ill. He was a concert pianist. He was so talented. We were friends from college. And I watched as he lost weight and got various illnesses. And he got cytomegalovirus and pneumocystis and just about everything. And in the end, he had to move home to Pennsylvania because he couldn't see, he couldn't hear. I remember his funeral. It was brutally sad. I sobbed and sobbed in the arms of one of his, of, of his uh, ex-boyfriend. 
who was quite a lot older. And it was just, it was so painful. Um, and then one of my co- friends and colleagues, my partner and I had, then partner and I had friends, uh, a friend from work, and we were friends with, with the two of them. They were a young couple like us. And uh, one day, and I'll tell this story in the, uh, the upcoming season, one of the two of them was diagnosed with, with, with AIDS. And I remember vividly sitting in their living room talking about it and, and Mark saying, I'm going to beat this. And Mark didn't live another year even. He died um, on Gay Pride Day in 1986. And he was Sorry. in his 20s. And yeah, my, ex, my then partner and I hosted his memorial service at the Vassar Club in New York City. It was the first um, memorial for someone who died from AIDS at the Vassar Club, which was a fancy wow. club on the Upper East Side. It was, the Vassar Club was inside a club called the Lotus Club. I don't think I'd ever seen a, a, the whole place filled with, with gay people. Um, in 1986. It was a very sad and scary time. But I also, I wasn't one of the people in ACT UP. I wasn't out protesting. I was in journalism school during part of that time. And I did a couple of stories on, on AIDS, but it was also dicey to be out as a journalist. It, it was, uh, uh, it was um, if not career ending, it certainly put limits right. on my career. The guy from Mississippi, who was the page one editor. He was the, amazing. The San Francisco amazing. Chronicle. He had to be somebody that you connected with. Was that somebody you wanted to have a beer with? Yeah, um, in fact, I've had many beers with him. Um, <laughs> Great. Awesome. Sam- that is he, so good. He was at the San Francisco Examiner. He was one of the people involved in the founding of the of NLGJA, the National Lesbian Gay Journalists Association, although it's called something else now. He was, I called him the sissy from Mississippi in the book because he described himself that way. He was a, a, a very f- uh, feminine guy and got beat up, got kidnapped once. Um, but he was the high, when I interviewed him, he was the highest ranking person on the editorial side of a newspaper in the United yeah. States, um, which was yeah. a very, very big deal. He was never closeted at work. And then he went from there to the Washington Post and from there to the New York Times, um, is now retired. Um, his name is Greg Brock. He's one of the heroes of the movement. And he wasn't in the movement. He was a journalist who just lived his life and decided he would never, ever try to be, uh, to hide it. I love his episode, and uh, it's, it's all about. He t- it's a story. One of the stories is about going on op- the Oprah Winfrey show for National Coming Out Day. He is a great. He's a great storyteller, and I'm extremely fond of him. And we have remained friends throughout. You're really good at this, and I, I, I have to wonder: has there been, you know, a person, a moment where you know you were speechless, where you just didn't, you know, you didn't know how to react, where to go from from something you heard. Um, there were many moments like that. Um, I had one recently with the widow of the man I counseled at GMHC. And you'll hear, I don't want to give this away. You'll hear it in the episode. Sure. There were times that where, where I was left speechless by what, what someone did, um, uh, on any number of occasions, but my job is to ask questions. So, I mean, I can think of one moment where I was afraid to ask the next question because of what the response might be. It was with Damian Martin, who with his partner founded the Hetrick Martin Institute for the Protection of Lesbian and Gay Youth in New York City in 1978. It was a radical organization in that they were saying that we gay people can take care of young people. We can protect the young people. It's the straight people who are dangerous to to our young people. It's not gay people who are the threat. So uh, by the time I interviewed Damien, it was in 88 or 89, Emery had already died of AIDS. Damien was sick. Uh, Damien knew he was going to die. And there was a point in the interview where I thought, I really need to ask Damien what his life has been like without Emery. What's it, what, is it, what is it like living without him? And I thought, are you really going to ask this question? Because I knew I would probably wind up crying. And I, I, you know, I was experienced enough at that point because I'd interviewed 
Vito Russo and asked him some tough questions. And his boyfriend had died three years prior. So with Vito, I prefaced the questions by saying, well, if you don't want to answer this. But by the time I got to Damien, I didn't say that. I just asked, I thought, ask the question. You're not going to have a second chance. And so I asked the question. And he spoke very honestly and movingly about what life was like without Damien. I'm sorry, without Emery, because I was interviewing Damien. The key with the work I do is to, is to not leave a, a question on the table. So yeah. they were, I, I transcribed all of my interviews of myself for that book. And I made notes within the interviews. And when I started working on the Making Gay History podcast and started reading these original transcripts 30 years after I typed them, I saw that I'd written notes to myself like, you idiot, why didn't you ask the next question? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all have that situation. You know, or, or, or why did you change the subject? Um, yes. you know, or why did you interrupt? So... You know, I've learned over the years a lot, but sure, there are things that people tell me that just blow me away. And I, I, and I don't hesitate to cry along with the people I interview. Right. Um, you know, tears are, uh, it's part of, of living. I just did that a yeah. few hours ago with, with Salve, who gave, gave me my test. Yeah, sure. Are, who's the, you know, the one or few interviews you couldn't get that, you know, you'd give anything to have gotten? Well, Bayard Rustin was one. Uh, was Martin Luther King's uh, principal mentor and also the principal <laughs> organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for he wrote job. A book, did he not? Uh, yes, but we we found uh, we found the 1987 interview of Bayard Rustin, which was hidden in a box under the bed of his surviving partner Walter Nagel, who was good enough to give us the cassette tape, and we did a whole episode with Bayard Rustin. I really wanted to interview Ernestine Eckstein, who was famous because. She is in a photograph, one of Kayla Husen's photographs, marching in one of the 1965 protests in front of the White House. She's wearing white framed cat's eye sunglasses. Um, she has a chignon hair, hairstyle, hairdo. She's wearing a white blouse, black skirt, white pumps, African-American woman. And there were not many African-American people involved in the movement at that time, but I couldn't find her. She left the, the gay rights movement in the late 60s. She moved to the West Coast. Ernestine Eckstein wasn't her real name, but we found my, my executive producer, uh, Sarah Birmingham found a 1965 interview that Barbara Giddings and Kay Lehusen did with Ernestine Eckstein, who famously was on the 1966 cover of The Ladder, a, a picture of her, um, the first African-American woman on the cover of The Ladder. She risked her job. She was a civil servant then to be on the cover of a magazine. It was in profile, so harder to recognize. So Ernestine Eckstein, Bayard Rustin, I almost got to interview Leonard Bernstein. Um, wow. Uh, I had asked for an interview because one of my friends worked for him. And at first he declined. And then um, not long before I was supposed to hand in the manuscript, I, uh, or maybe even after I, I had, she called me and she said, he's thinking of doing the interview. Because he was not out at that point. And I thought selfishly, oh, great, uh, this will be a chance. And, and he had supported gay causes and, and black civil rights. It would be a chance for me to uh, make some news. And um, two weeks later, he died. So I just, just missed that interview. So that's so. Those are just a few. There are always people who I who I you know regret not having had the chance to interview. But those are just a few. Scott, I know you had another question or two. We have a few more minutes, so take it away. Well, I want to again thank you for this hour and all that you've done for our organization and uh, getting the word out to our community. When you were reading newspapers back in the eighties. Wine people didn't have access to newspapers at the time. Right, right. Uh, and one of our members was a pioneer in, in the recording uh, on cassette tape at the time, gay literature. And that was the first exposure I had to it at the time. Um, and he distributed the cassettes, and it was a true labor of love and a very uh, labor-intensive task. Wow, wow. But anyway, what I wanted to 
ask you sort of in, in closing for now, what keeps you going, Eric? What uh, <laughs> What's the next 10 years going to be like? Oh, my you? God. I've always been so bad at planning. Um, I'm, I'm holding <laughs> I my doubt face. that. I seriously doubt that. No, no, no. I'm holding my face as you, as you ask that. Okay, okay. So much of my career was accidental. The Making Gay History podcast was an accident. I came back to this work because I got fired from my job at the American Foundation yes, for Suicide yes. Prevention in 2015 oh, okay. and had to figure okay. out what I'm going to do next. And, you know, yeah. I... I read about uh, read a book about how you figure out the rest of your life when you're that age. I know, and, uh, but at that age, you're, you're supposed to look at what your assets are. And one of my oh, big yeah. assets was one of my big assets was my archive of these 100 interviews that I turned Gosh. over to the New York Public Library in 2008 with an agreement that they digitized the whole collection. Right. So what do you do with a collection of rare interviews of LGBTQ people and allies? And I had a series of conversations. So that eventually led to the podcast. So that's ex- accidental, but that's led to now doing a lot of education work um, because I think LGBTQ history belongs in the classroom. So I have education partners. They're uh, an organization called History and Erased. So we're going down that path. There's a Making Gay History play now. So I see as my, as my work going forward, bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it. But I also produce another podcast. I was hired to produce a podcast called Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, which is drawn from the archive, the video archive. Um, It's the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University. So I now produce a podcast for them. We've done two seasons of 10 episodes each, telling individual stories of Holocaust survivors and witnesses to the Holocaust. I'm Jewish. I grew up in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors and war refugees. So that's also near and dear to my heart. So I don't know where I'll be in 10 years. I hope I'm alive. That's number one. Oh, yes. Um, I don't know. I'd like to do more of this work. Not quite as pressured as it is now because I'm a little overwhelmed um, by all the work I'm doing, but I certainly don't expect to be retired. You don't sound like the retiring kind of guy. I seem not to, (laughs) I seem seem to be going in the other direction. There you go. There you go. And and, uh, we know you're a busy guy and in in great demand. And again, thank you for sharing your time. Of course. Of course, delighted. And, uh, and I should tell you that I'm working on getting the first edition of making, it's called Making History, was the first edition of Making uh-huh. Gay History. Notice we didn't have the word gay in the title. That's, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, we were afraid that the uh, book uh, buyers would be reluctant to, or no, the salespeople would be reluctant to, to sell a book. To have it on a shelf, yeah. And then booksellers would be reluctant so, to have it face out on a shelf. So right. um, I've been working with my publisher on trying to get a, an audio uh, edition ah. published of the first, or the original Making History. I'm hoping I have an answer soon. Um, I'd like to see it published on the 30th anniversary next year of the original Making History. Oh, that I'd love to see that. Hear yeah, that, really. That yes, hear it. Yeah. And if yeah. you could record it, even even better, because yeah, you're a natural audio describer, my friend. Oh, that's a that's a 550 page book. I don't think I have vocal cords that can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I understood. Understood. There's, you know, a lot of things that are that are surfacing um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and social unrest that we're experiencing right now. Things like Tulsa, Oklahoma, do events and, and thing, you know, and movements that are happening now, you know, give you that pause to say, wow, maybe I should think about getting into this space. No, I am so fully occupied in the spaces that I that I now occupy the LGBTQ space and the, and the Holocaust space or as a joke. You know, I shouldn't make jokes, but the Holocaust and homosexuals is what I do. And interestingly, we cannot find a single testimony, recorded testimony from someone who was put in a concentration camp because they were gay. Um, You know, plenty didn't survive, but but there are no recorded interviews as far as I can tell. Um, Maybe there's one out there, I hope. No, no, I I have my hands full. 
Um, and there are younger people who are as young as I was when I started my work who should be in that space now. Um, I'm happy to deal with the past. The present in some ways is very confusing and sometimes depressing, but I, I really enjoy bringing the past back to life. You do that well. You really Thank you. Do. You do. Uh, oh, I was going to say, tell everybody where they can find Making Gay History, where they can find the Holocaust podcast. So uh, you can find Making Gay History wherever you get your podcasts or at makinggayhistory.com. Um, we have all of our episodes on the website, plus we have all kinds of additional information and links to other stories uh, about each episode. Um, you can find uh, those who are there, Voices from the Holocaust, also wherever you get your podcasts or at those who are there. Dot org. That's those who are there.org. And you can find Making a History on Twitter, on Instagram, um, on Facebook. We are everywhere you go. Um, and for June, you'll be on kiosks in New York City, um, the wow. outdoor kiosks uh, with, with a bit of trivia about LGBTQ history. And also there are all kinds of documentaries that have been out recently, and you can find me in those too. And you can find Eric during the National Convention. Um, he'll be talking a little bit more about the HIV AIDS epidemic and some of his favorite episodes from the series that will start in July. We're so excited for this next arm of the journey. Thank you so much for listening to Pride Connection. As always, you'll find our membership information at blindlgbtpride.org. We'll be back next Tuesday with a great show, Laura Bell Bundy who recorded uh, the iconic, now iconic song, You Can't Pray the Gay Away. And we'll hear her personal journey and her activism um, exploits. So we'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org and join our conversation. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. The lovers, the dreamers.